0: Folks, um, uh, those of us who are still here, uh, just if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 25. Genesis 25. Uh, We'll be taking the entirety of the chapter uh, this morning. Um, But before we come to the reading, um, I just want to give a word of introduction, perhaps even review, um, for everything that we've looked at up to this point. Um, As we look through these several verses this morning you'll notice that we're coming to the end of the Abraham narrative. So this is the end of a narrative that actually spanned all the way back to chapter 12 and arguably really was anticipated at the end of chapter 9. So we're coming to a real division in the book of Genesis. And what you're going to find is there's actually two subdivisions that we encounter in this single chapter. Um, And those subdivisions we'll tease out as we come to them. But the point is, this 25th chapter is crucial to to looking at the narrative of Genesis and its general progression. Um, We're not looking here at just a a continuation of what's gone before, we're looking here at a genuine transition. But keeping that in front of us, I I wanna begin uh, perhaps more on a practical level about what this 25th chapter does for us as Christians. So folks, I know that you know that when we come to the scriptures, Um, Anytime we look at them, we know that the word of God is going to answer the leading questions in life, those macrocosmic questions like, where did I come from and where am I going? Uh, The scriptures obviously answer that, and it's cosmology and eschatology. But in this 25th chapter, I think we can also observe that the scriptures also teach us, if you like, how to think about those microcosmic questions. In other words, how do I think about providence in my own life? How do I think about God's dealings with me? What should I emphasize as I remember God's dealings with me in the past? You see, the scriptures answer both. They answer how you and I are supposed to think about universal things, and they also answer questions about how you and I are even to remember the past, our own lives. So I want us to see that this this morning. But as we look at this text, keeping that kind of behind us for a moment, you'll notice that there are four basic divisions. Verses 1 to 11, you have really the conclusion of the Abraham narrative. Verses 12 to 18, you have Ishmael's generations and death. And then verses 19 to 24, you have the theme of election coming back to the foreground. And then 25 to 34, you have a fulfillment. And what I want to do, is, as we've done before, is I want to walk through all of these verses, making a couple of comments along the way as those comments arise. And then at the end, I want us to apply uh, the text. So we take the first section, which is verses 1 to 11, and we'll begin reading there at the first verse. And beloved, once again, hear the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him, Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan began, begat Sheba, and Didan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Lesushim, and Laumimin, And the sons of Midian, Eva, and Efer, and Hanuk, and Abida, and Aldala. All these were the children of Keturah. Now, As you look at this text, uh, first of all, we need to recognize that Keturah is somebody that we have not encountered before. Uh, This is not another name for Hagar. Uh, Some would argue that in the Jewish tradition. It's not. Uh, This is another woman. And the question that you and I encounter immediately is, what is going on here? Uh, Why does Abraham take another wife? And uh, there are some who would fault the man, but, but you really ought not um, as Martin Luther, I think, very hopefully, reminds us, Abraham was promised to be a father of nations. Now, he already begat Ishmael and Isaac, two nations. But as the Lord gave Abraham life and strength, he rightly interpreted that the Lord also intended him to continue to have children. And so he does. And what's striking is, as you look at this then, this is really an expression of Abraham's faith. He's an aged man. And yet he continues to look to God by faith that God indeed would continue to make him a father of nations, even after the death of Sarah. And it's important for us to look at this text just for a moment and and recognize that God indeed did fulfill that through Keturah. These are nations that we're seeing created here. And what's striking even even at that is, these are nations that even according to the scriptures for a time possessed true faith. Let me show you that just for a moment. Perhaps the one name out of that list that you're most familiar with would, of course, be Midian. Um, And, of course, that takes us back to Jethro and Sephora. Midian, of course, was a priest to the Most High God. Uh, He was not a a devoted man to the Canaanite deities. He was a Jehovah priest. But we can go even a step further. This is so striking. You'll notice here that from Ketirah, you have Shua. Now, we actually encounter a Shua in the scriptures. It's Job, the eighth chapter in the first verse. Bildad, the Shuite. Now, what that means then, friend, first of all, is this helps us date the book of Job. Job does not occur before this moment. Uh, Job uh, is at least a contemporary of Jacob because Bildad is a Shuite some descendant at some length from Shua of Keturah, And why is that so important? Well, friend, I want you to remember that as you look through the book of Job, Bildad and all of his contemporaries, all of his friends who were with Job, were wrong with regard to Job, but were otherwise godly men. And so even though they moved themselves far to the east, yet both in Midian and in Shua, you have you have a genuine faith in the living God present. The scriptures bear that out. And so not only was Abraham a father of nations in this case, but, but for a time, these nations were actually godly nations. we we'll continue here. And Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. But unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived eastward unto the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, a hundred, threescore, and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. We'll stop there just for a moment. This is obviously the record of Abraham's death, but I, I I want you to note just how the inspired historian communicates that to us. He uses a striking turn of phrase. He says here, that he was gathered to his people. Now, that's a phrase that comes up several, several places in the book of Genesis. I think the one that's clearest is in Jacob's account in Genesis 49, where Jacob says, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers. Now, if we look at that instance, what we find out here is that that phrase, being gathered to one's people, is not a reference to the circumlocation of the body. In other words, this is not about burial. He's, Abraham is not looking to be buried with Nahor here. That's not what he means. In fact, as you look at Jacob, he says, he is to be gathered to his people, therefore bury him with his fathers. They're two distinct things. So what does the phrase mean? What does it mean? Well, friend, I think we need to read this Rightly. I think we need to read this as not just a meaningless turn of phrase. I think we need to read this as it has genuine meaning. And if it does, then that means that Abraham, Abraham and we'll see Ishmael and Jacob after him, recognize that death is a sense of renewed communion. What I mean by that is just this, that Abraham knows that there is life after death. The book of Genesis teaches us that very clearly. Of course, the Sadducees denied that in Christ's day, but but the book of Scripture is very clear. There is life after death. And more than that, in death, one is gathered to their people. Uh, We'll see with regard to Ishmael what that might mean. But there is life after death. The Scriptures teach this very clearly. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite which is before Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Hath. There was Abraham buried, and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the well of Laharoi. And so we come to the transition. This is the final, really, note that we receive from Abraham's life, and we move to Isaac. But before we move to Isaac, you'll notice at verse 12, we move to Ishmael. Now these are the generations of Ishmael. Just a note, the word generations of is our Hebrew word that I've referred to time and again. It's the structural word that organizes the entire book. That is the word toledot. There are ten instances of that in the book of Genesis. Here we encounter one that marks something of a small division, one of the subdivisions that I'd mentioned before. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, unto Abraham. And these are the names of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Navayoth and Kedar and Abdel and Mibsam and Mishma and Tuduma and Masa and Hadar and Tema and Jatsur and, La- and Nafshish and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their towns and by their cities. Twelve princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, a hundred and thirty and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt in Havilah and Ashur, that is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. Now again, this is the second instance we've encountered that phrase, um, gathered unto one's people. Abraham, of course, we understand what that means. If he's referring here, as we ought to see it, as life after death, we understand that here, Abraham is going to be with the saints. At at his death, Abraham renews communion with those who are truly his, truly his people, the sons of God. But what do we say with regard to Ishmael? Ishmael is, is a complicated character in the scriptures. Um, and, and so some would say that we can't say that, that Ishmael is, is any different than Abraham in this regard, that Ishmael is also gathered to be with the sons of God. Uh, but I do think it's striking here in this text. You don't find, you don't find that necessarily being the case. Um, he is gathered unto his people. Uh, could very well mean, just like it does in the case of Balaam, that he went to his place. Abraham had his people Ishmael went to be with his people. They may not be the same groups of people. We don't know. But it's I think important for us to recognize that we can't say too much here. Also just a brief note that all of the nations that are given to us in this list here all of these nations occupy North Arabia. Okay? So they're not Canaanites at all. Uh, they would be far more far more to the east and to the north. Now, that really is an aside. That's a subdivision, and that moves us directly into what really is the principal focus in, strikingly and, and somewhat paradoxically, the Isaac narrative. You, you remember here that in this moment we are, now, we are now driven to think about Jacob and Esau. Verse 19, and these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham began Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. Rebekah, his wife, conceived, and the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? Now was a curious expression that. And it could mean one of two things. In the, in the original, it's not entirely clear. It could mean Simply, well, what does this mean? In other words, as Rebecca feels the two children in her womb struggling against each other, uh, she may ask, what, what does this portend? Uh, wh- what does this mean? What, what, what should I, how should I interpret this? Or it could, it could mean even something more. Uh, the Hebrew bears this out as well. It, it could actually mean, why should I live on? In other words, Rebecca here is racked with both pain and fear. Why should I live on? You can take it either way. But the Lord answers the question. She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall serve the younger, sorry, shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now, the answer comes to us in four lines that are paired into twos. And, of course, the answer is here that there will be twins. There are twins in her womb. But the blessing will be reverse to what one might expect. The blessing will fall on the younger and on the descendants of the younger rather than the older. Now, what we have then throughout the rest of this chapter is actually just a fulfillment of that. And as you look at verses 24 to the end, you really are supposed to see here that that the inspired historian is emphasizing every element of this promise that was given to Rebecca, And we'll see that in just a moment. Starting here again. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like in hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. Now, the word red there is really important because of what the inspired historian is doing for us. It's very clear in the original. In the English, it doesn't come out so clear at all. The word red is the word Edom. The word red is Edom. It's distinguished from Esau. And also, interestingly enough, the word for hair in this case is Seir. Now, if you remember your biblical geography, you remember that Seir was the most prominent city in Edom. So what is the inspired historian doing for us? As we'll see this in just a moment, he's he's leading us to think not just about Esau himself, but about everything that has been promised. He's leading us to think about Esau's descendants as well. After that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. Isaac was three score years old when she bare them, and the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And I'm going to pause here for an extended period of time I know I don't have much time, but this is really, really important. The historian guided by the Spirit of God is giving to us a crucial part of the narrative, and not only for chapter 25, but really for the entire book of Genesis here. In these very brief character descriptions, you and I are supposed to see both the fulfillment, the fulfillment of what was promised to Rebecca. And you're also supposed to see here how the covenant of God is actually going to be how it will transcend the generations and go through Jacob and his line. Now, first of all, Jacob, of course, we all know what that means. Yakov. it is ankle grabber in the most literal sense. In its more, in a more illustrative sense, it means simply supplanter. Now, Esau, then, is described for us. After Jacob is named, Esau is called a man of the field. In the original, you could translate that man of the outdoors, or you could say he's a man of the open ground. He's a man, he's a man who is out, removed from his home. That's where he, he, he's pleased to be. And that's in contrast, of course, to Jacob, who is a man who dwells in tents. Okay, so obviously... You and I, we can understand quite clearly that that Esau is the man, the hunter, the, the the great the great outdoorsman, while Jacob is something of the homebody. But is that all? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. The the inspired historian is telling us quite a bit here. I want you to notice that Jacob here is called a plain man. Now, I I can't pretend to know why why English translations have translated it this way. Historically, older English translations didn't translate it this way. Um, And elsewhere in the scriptures, it's not translated this way. The word in the original is the same word that you find in Genesis 6-9. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. It's the same word you find in Job 1-1. Job was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. The word for plain here that has been translated for us so is actually the word for perfect. Jacob is being described in the same way that Noah is described in Genesis 6 and that Job is described in Genesis, I'm sorry, Job 1 and Job 2. Why is this so important? Well, Well, friend, I want you to recognize here that we're being told something very crucial about Jacob's heart. This is not merely about his... This doesn't have anything to do with his appearance. Actually, this is a man who, like Noah, served God in his generation. And we even see evidence of that. Jacob dwells in tents. Who does he live with? Jacob is pleased to live with the covenant body. While Esau is a mighty hunter out in the open field. And what we find as we read through the book of Genesis is, that doesn't just mean he likes to be outside. That means that he likes to fraternize with the world. And so you have a contrast here. Jacob longs to be with his family, which is also the church of God. And Esau longs to be out in the world and fraternizing with it. The two, we're told here very clearly, are dispositionally opposite. One has an inclination toward God like Noah and like Job. The other is living contentedly in the world. We'll see that in a moment. We'll continue our reading here. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loves Jacob. Now this is obviously the point of problem for our part of the narrative. Uh, this is favoritism, and favoritism here is not at all it um, is not at all condoned, but I want you to notice, and we 'll come back to this at the very end, that the narrator here gives us the reason why Isaac loved Esau it 's striking he doesn 't do so for Rebecca, but he gives us isaac 's reason we 'll come back to that at the end and Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Again, we find that word Edom, word for red. Um, again, the, the inspired historian is leading us to think, not only about Esau, but even beyond him and to his descendants. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at a point to die. And what shall this, what, what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Now, again, this is one of those texts that we're all very, very, very familiar with, but I think has been largely misinterpreted uh, for quite some time. Uh, in most accounts of it, and I mean by the flannel graph and the coloring pages that our kids are so accustomed to, uh, the idea is is that Esau comes in, he's genuinely famished, he's, he's nearly on death's door, and, and Jacob, always conniving, always plotting, looks at his brother, and, and in a way of, of absolute uncharity, then decides this is the time to make Esau sell me his birthright, and, and so here, Esau comes out as the likable, though though victimized character, and Jacob, he's, he's the conniving, the sniveling sibling in the background. That's not at all what the scriptures are teaching us, at all. Um, I want you to just think about this for a moment. Esau here, Esau does not have any of the characteristics of a man who's on death's door. Um, as you look through this account, if you just... I mean, read even the famine narratives. You'll find that as somebody who is truly about to die from hunger, first of all, usually the last thing they want is food. And secondly, they're hardly cogent. They can hardly stream thoughts together. Esau is obviously in command of his own, of his own faculties. He's obviously able to communicate. Esau here is pinched with hunger. There's no doubt about it. The man here is very clearly exaggerating his problems. And I want you to notice this too. When you look at this exchange between these two brothers, you have to ask the question, was was the birthright something that Esau could ever sell? Was it something that Jacob could ever buy? And the answer to that question, really across the board, is no. No. It never could be. It wasn't Esau's to sell. The birthright doesn't come because of Esau's merit. It comes because of his position. It comes from his father. More than that, because of election and that was already declared, it was not Esau's to sell to begin with. God had already given it to Jacob. So what really is going on here? What really is this interaction about? Well, to understand that, I think we need to come to the very last verse. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up, went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So, what's going on? Well, friend, if we keep what, what we've already been told about Jacob, that he's a man who is serving God, loves God, is pleased to be in the church of God, and that Esau is a man of the world, and that all it's very clear to rebecca and to isaac that that there will be this great reversal and such that jacob will receive the birthright and the blessing not esau then this is not really so much about a transaction as it is jacob seeking esau's confirmation that he will not he will not try to lay claim to something that is rightfully and only jacob's The birthright was never his to sell. And anybody familiar with Eastern culture will tell you that. You simply can't get rid of it. But you can, you can passively allow it to go to another. And that really is how we're supposed to see this text. Jacob is saying, in essence, you know that the birthright is mine. And so this is an opportunity for you to very clearly state that you will not compete for it. And the narrator reminds us at the end what all of this was about. This was not about Jacob conniving. This was a clear picture of Esau despising the blessing of God. Now, as we close, there's so much here. But I want us to take a step back and hold chapter 25 in in conjunction with everything that we've seen up to this point in the book of Genesis. And I mean that. I want us to go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, When we look at the book of Genesis, there are some, I think, who at first brush read it, and, and they treat it as a chronicle. Basic chronicle, this is just what happened. So it tells us everything that happened without discrimination. Obviously, that's not the case, as we've already seen, the book of Genesis and its history is selective. We're told certain things about, other, about certain people while other things are left to the wayside. We learn about Abraham and his line. We, we, leave, we, lay, we leave the nations in Genesis 11. The, the account is selective. This is not just a diary, as it were, of human history. But there's another way of reading the book of Genesis, and I would say this is the intermediate level, and they say, well, this is just a book of biographies, inspired biographies. But I want you to notice, as you look at this, we're not really given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're, they're whole personalities. We're not given the mundane aspects of their life. We're, we're given, again, very selective accounts of their lives. So then what is this book about? If it's not just a general diary of human history in this this epoch, and it's not simply an assortment of biographies, then what is the book organized around? Well, Friend, we've already seen this, but, but the answer to that question is it really is about divine election and how that election confounds human wisdom. That is the book of Genesis. It is divine election confounding human wisdom. And we see this from the very beginning. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Thy seed and her seed are divided. And that will be the principal theme throughout the book of Genesis. We will see how this is divided. As you go to chapter 4, whenever Abraham, sorry, Adam rather, reflects on the death of Abel. Sorry, Eve reflects on the death of Abel. She says this, she says, for God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. Cain has obviously in Eve's mind been cut off. He's alive, but she doesn't count him in this regard as one of her own. Instead, that belongs to Seth, a division between the seeds. We can continue. When you come to Genesis 6, you remember the evil of that generation was this. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. What was the great evil? It was the evil when the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman joined themselves together after they had for nearly a millennium been driven apart by God's election. That was the evil that, inc- that inculcated the flood. We can go further. In Genesis 9, the distinction comes down to Shem. He is called, the Lord is called the Lord God of Shem, not of Japheth and not of Ham. And we see how this is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be fulfilled through Abram, Genesis 12. But if you can recall more more recently in our studies, from Genesis 12 on, this idea of election discriminating between those whom the world would would think would be really the children of promise is the principal theme. For an example, chapters 12 to 14. Lot is the nephew that goes with Abram. Lot would in the ancient world be the most likely contender to be the heir to Abram's estate. But what do we find? God divides them. The child of promise will not be Lot. Go to chapter 15. Abraham himself goes before God, says, will it be Eleazar of Damascus? In the ancient world, that would have been the next potential heir to the estate. That is the head of your house, your leading servant. And God says, no. What about Ishmael? Uh, The the one who was born of that kind of surrogate marriage. And uh, Will it be him? Again, in the ancient world, that was quite a custom. Genesis 16, the Lord says, no. Genesis 17 to 24, even after being put to the test, the answer is it will be Isaac. Beloved, at every point in the book of Genesis, you and I have encountered election, confounding human wisdom, exalting the wisdom and omnipotence of God. And now when you come to chapter 25, you find that in its most narrow sense. Election has discriminated between two men who occupied the same womb. Two men who lived the same, from the same moment belong to the same family, election discriminates, and even there, confounds human wisdom. What's striking is, as you look at the book of Genesis, then in Genesis 25, you have election discriminating the closest relationship between men that we've seen thus far in the book of Genesis. This is the principal theme of the book. The book of Exodus is about God redeeming his people into communion with him. Exodus 1, his people in bondage. Exodus 40, God dwelling in the tabernacle with his people. The book of Genesis, God's election confounding human wisdom. That is what this book is about, and Genesis 25 is so very clearly indicating that. But I want you to notice, beloved, as we think of election in that regard, it's important to see that this is also leading us to apply the doctrine. Election, in this case, explains why these men were so different. It explains why Esau was a man of the world and why Jacob was a man of God. In other words, beloved, what you have here is not something that that should cause anger among so many who hear about election for the first time. All this does is it reminds us that if Jacob was a perfect man, that is, a man who loved God, election reminds us that it was only because God had done that work of grace. What's striking is when you come to at Romans 9, that's precisely the use of this text that the apostle makes. In fact, in Romans 9, he gives us a brief summary of everything from chapter 16 to 25. To highlight this discriminating work of election, the point is that election doesn't is not to discourage any; it is to remind us that election explains why men are godly and why others aren't. And friend, I'll have to stop there. There's so much more I'd, I'd love to say, um, but but let's let's close by coming back to the throne of grace together. Let's stand to pray. Blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you for your mercies and your kindnesses towards us. And Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, we thank you that it leads us to think. It leads us to remember aright, to reflect that all that we have, all of that grace that we've received comes only as a free act of grace and that from the counsels of eternity. Father, we thank you that this debases us. It leaves us without any room for pride or self righteousness, and that it exalts free grace. It exalts the Lord God alone. Lord, we ask that you would lead us to think of our lives in this in this regard. Uh, That when we think on your dealings with us, uh, Father, we would remember that all glory is only to redound to your name. Uh, That we are but creatures. Uh, creatures who were undone in Adam the first and only by grace, made new through your Son. Uh, So, Father, we ask that in your love, that you would work in us that humility, that you would lead us to praise, that grace that has called us in Christ. As we come to the worship of your name this morning, we ask that you go before us, uh, lead and guide us, we ask, and we pray that in your mercy you would meet with us. Dwell among us, we pray, for we ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.